Now, Advent is typically understood as the start of the Christmas season, you know, that time when you're officially allowed to start celebrating Christmas. You know, everything we enjoy about Christmas, the food, the festivities, the music, the decorations, the lights, presents, and singing, all of these things in this period seem to be fair game, right? You can uh, call a dinner that you have on December the 16th. You can call it a Christmas dinner. Or you can start playing Christmas music by Nat Cole King or Bing Crosby or Mariah Carey, and no one would look at you strange. It's that time where you can do all things Christmas, and you're allowed to. Now, this season, this Advent season, is generally understood as a time of Christmas indulgence. And for me, at least, it seems to be coming earlier and earlier every year. However, I do think it's important that we maintain a distinction between Advent and Christmas. Advent isn't Christmas stretched over an entire month. In other words, Advent isn't a pre-celebration of Christmas. In fact, Advent is the very opposite. You know, Advent has traditionally been observed in the church as a season of solemn waiting and watching. Advent is more of a fast. It's more a season of abstaining before the grand coming of the Lord. Advent is a time where the people awaited and abstained so that they can celebrate the joyous coming of Christ on Christmas. Now you have to ask, why did they do this? Why did they abstain so that they can celebrate? For the same reason people eat pickled ginger. Pickled ginger is not a pleasant taste. For most people, I don't think it is. But when you eat pickled ginger, it cleanses your palate And it heightens your taste buds so that when that raw piece of fish hits your tongue, you can taste the distinct flavors of that fish, where it's from, what body part it is. You know, despite some of our eating habits, right, uh, sushi is not meant to just be thrown in and mixed and to be filled with. It's meant so that you can savor each fish, each piece, understand and think about where it's from, right? With each piece, you, you, you eat another piece of ginger to cleanse it, and then you take up another piece. And in this way, your senses are being heightened, and you are enjoying uh, all the pleasures of sushi. It's also the reason why people put small beads of sea salt on the finest pieces of dark chocolate. Because once that salt enters into your mouth and it melts, The salt accentuates the sweetness of the chocolate. Christians, during this time, deliberately underwent a season of waiting and watching. And they did this to heighten their awareness, to intensify the celebration of the coming of Jesus on Christmas. In other words, it was the way in which the church and Christians experienced deep darkness before the light. 
And uh, this season, I would like to encourage our congregation towards this, to deliberately undergo a season of solemn waiting and watching. Now, to be honest, I was uh, somewhat hesitant about this, because even though I know the meaning of Advent and you know, the way in which this was traditionally observed, um, I didn't want to really share this too much, because to be honest, no one really wants to be the Scrooge of Christmas, right? When everyone is festive and joyous, I didn't want to be the one to say, fast, right? No, fast. You know, I too want to turn on some Michael Bublé, you know, Christmas music and enjoy the ham and the nostalgia of Christmas. But, you know, if I'm honest again, you know, I think this Christmas spirit and all of this Christmas celebration comes way too soon. You know, it feels like it's getting earlier and earlier every year, right? Uh, back then, you know, I think people waited at least until after Thanksgiving, but now it's immediately after Halloween. We hear the music, we see the Christmas-themed songs, and by the time Christmas actually rolls around, I am all Christmased out. You know, it's like cocktail hour at a wedding where you eat too much, you enjoy too much that you don't really enjoy what's to come. And so to really celebrate the coming of Jesus, to really understand and appreciate Jesus coming in the flesh, to celebrate it and to worship it, I think we should follow the wisdom of our forefathers and abstain to wait to watch. And so... In this spirit, uh, I want to uh, look at today's passage, Exodus 19. Now, we're not turning away from Exodus. Uh, we're actually looking at Exodus during this Advent season because in Exodus, we find multiple occasions of God coming to his people. And Exodus 19 is the first instance. It's the first episode of God coming to meet his people. And so, as we look at Exodus 19, I want to just simply ask and think about what is the coming of Jesus like? Or what is the coming of God like? What should we expect when God comes to his people? And there are three points that I want to just briefly look at. The coming of God is sacred, it's majestic, and it's transformative. The coming of God is sacred, it's majestic, and it's transformative. First, God's coming is sacred. Uh, if we look in today's passage at verses 10 and 11, it says this. God is speaking to Moses. He says, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. This is the Lord giving instructions to Moses as to how to instruct his people to prepare for God's coming. And the key words that we find throughout this, the key themes that we find are preparation and consecration. God is saying, I'm going to come to you and I will give you three days. Take three days to prepare yourselves. Take three days to seek holiness in your life. Because God is a holy God, and when he descends upon them, he wants his people to be ready. 
Now, I don't want uh, us to be misunderstood, okay? Uh, This act, when God says to consecrate yourselves, to to be holy, uh, this act didn't result in the people actually becoming, you know, objectively, absolutely holy, right? It's not like because they've, uh, you know, spent these three days that they are completely freed from sin. Uh, That's not the case, because if that was, then the people could just walk up to God, they can see God, they can touch God, and not suffer the consequences of death. No, but this, con- this, con- this consecration, this cleansing, uh, didn't result in absolute holiness because there was no way that the people can do this on their own. But what his spirit entailed was a deliberate mental and spiritual discipline of abstaining from the profane, and abstaining from the regular lay practices of life. In other words, God understood for the people to switch from this world to heaven, for the people to switch from a corporeal thinking to a more ethereal thinking, from the people to switch from a more fleshly life to a more divine mindset. God knew that they needed three days to prepare, to abstain, to stop the regular things of life. It was an extended Sabbath of them not paying attention to anything secular and to fix their minds on God. You know, when God comes to man throughout the Bible, he often commands them, be ready, prepare yourself, fast, take an extended Sabbath, rest from work, Fix your mind and your heart. Stop the secular businesses of the world and be consecrated before me. This is how God comes upon his people. I mean, even when Jesus began his earthly ministry, God sends a prophet named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, his ministry was preparing the people by preaching repentance and baptism. His role was just to be one who was preparing the people so that they can receive Jesus. This is how God comes upon his people. He calls them to be consecrated. He calls them to be set apart. He calls them to seek holiness in their lives so that he can come upon them. Now, I know that in the New Testament, the era that we are in currently, Our holiness is not achieved through discipline or self-consecration. No, holiness and righteousness is imparted to us. It's given to us as a free gift in the work of Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection. This is how we become holy, and this is how we meet with God through the work of Jesus. But strangely, strangely, this gospel has caused Christians to take the coming of God, to take this act of coming before God and meeting with him, the gospel has caused Christians to take this casually, to think of it lightly. You know, Christians often think you and I might fall victim to this or we are culprits of this. We might think, oh yeah, because Jesus paid for all my sins. I don't have to go through the laborious task of preparing a spotless lamb, of consecrating myself, of washing my clothes, and taking three days 
to be ready. Yeah, because Jesus died for me, I don't have to do all of that. And, you know, because of that, you know, we tend to take this act of meeting God casually. But let me ask you a question. If it took the death of God's own Son to wash away our stain, our guilt, and our filth, shouldn't we take this act of approaching God more seriously? If it took God's own Son dying for us, shouldn't our view of going before God be even more serious? You know, Jesus, because of his work, yeah, we don't have to wait for God to come to us. We have full access to him anytime. Yeah, Jesus means that there will never be a prayer that's not answered. There will never be a worship service where God is not present. And there will never be a fellowship that is not divine. Because of Jesus, we have full access to God. But doesn't that mean then that it should be done more seriously? You know, the New Testament, after the resurrection of Jesus tells us that now our meeting of God, when we meet and encounter God, we can do so with boldness and confidence, right? The New Testament teaches us we can be confident that our holiness is complete in Jesus. The New Testament teaches us that we can be bold when we go before God because our sins have been washed away. But it also tells us that this boldness and confidence is also coupled with reverence and awe. With reverence and awe. You know, worship in the New Testament is to be filled with both confidence and reverence. Okay. Worship that has just confidence and no reverence is actually presumption. It's flippancy. Just having all of this boldness and confidence with no reverence is presumption. You know, Hebrews 12 in the New Testament, um, Hebrews 12 is a great passage, and it actually recalls Exodus 19. In Hebrews 12, the author, is, he's drawing the, the, the reader's attention back to Exodus 19, and he says, listen, remember Exodus 19 when the people met with God, when they came to Mount Sinai, what happened? The people started to tremble. He talks about how the people, they were afraid because God was this consuming fire. But then you know what the author says? He says, what about now then? What about now? Because of Jesus, we don't come to Mount Sinai, but we actually come to a better place called Mount Zion, which is, in other words, heaven itself. And the author of Hebrews uses this even more argument. If Sinai was dreadful, if Sinai was terrifying, if Sinai was taken deeply seriously, how much more should we take the worship of God now? Should we take the meeting of God now? Because we don't come to a mountain in the deserts of Arabia, but we come now to heaven itself. You know, this earlier this morning, we sang a song, and it started by saying, turn your ears to heaven, turn your gaze to heaven. That is where we are coming. 
And the author of Hebrews says, shouldn't that mean it should be taken more seriously with more reverence and awe? And here's what he says towards the end. Hebrews 12, 28 to 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. In the way that he was a consuming fire in Exodus 19, he is a consuming fire still. But now through Jesus, we have full access. And so let us receive this with thanksgiving and offer acceptable worship with reverence and awe. You know, if you allow me to speak a little more directly uh, this morning. You know, I, I started to think a little bit more about this this week, thinking, yeah, shouldn't this truth, the truth of the gospel, that we have more access to God because of Jesus, right, because we have the perfect sacrifice, shouldn't this cause us to offer more praise and worship? Shouldn't this cause us to offer with greater confidence and reverence worship to God? But it seems, at least to me, that the gospel has had the opposite effect on the people, that we've misunderstood what this gospel is teaching. We think, okay, because of Jesus, I'm okay. I don't really have to prepare. I can be casual. I can be non-reverential. I don't even have to prioritize it. And if my schedule fills up, it's okay. I have a free pass for life. Friends, you know what the biggest deterrent is for people actually worshiping? You know what the biggest deterrent for even like a, a gathering like this, a biggest deterrent for people worshiping, it's not the hypocrisy of the church. It's inconvenience. If meeting God in worship is the slightest bit inconvenient, it's forfeited, immediately thrown away like your Sunday coupons. You know, there's this up-and-coming uh, comedian named Hassan Minaj. I believe he's from Pakistan. He has a new show on Netflix called uh, The Patriot Act. And in one of the episodes, uh, Hassan Minaj, he talks about how our generation is one of the most socially aware generations of all time. He says, people nowadays, because of the information world uh, that we live in, people today, they are the most woke that's what he says. We are the most woke generation of all time. But he says, however, we don't do anything about it. Even though we are the most socially aware or morally conscious people, we don't do anything about it. And it's because more than being woke, what's important is being convenienced. He says, we will have being woke and convenience before us, and people will always choose the latter. And he says this, convenience is the commodity that matters most to our generation. You know, I was amazed by this passage, going through it again in Exodus 19. <clears throat> Do you know how many times God tells uh, Moses to go back and forth? Right? First, Moses goes up. Okay? And then God says, go back down. Tell them I said this. Moses goes back down. And then he comes back up, and he says, and Moses reports to God, this is what the people said. And then Moses says, okay, go back down then and do this. And Moses goes back down, and he does it. And then he comes back up, and Moses says, go back down again and bring Aaron with you. Three times, back and forth, back and forth. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, 
What is God? Moses is 80 years old. You're telling him to go up and down a mountain. Can we just do it in one trip here? You're wasting mileage. You know, and I think about you know, our congregation. Our congregation is relatively young. But we do have some old people. And, um, you know, some people on the back nine. But, you know, if you talk to them, if you talk to some of our old folks, I mean, it sounds like they are on their last leg. They say, oh, my back, I can't do this, I'm old. It's a young man's game. Moses was 80. And back and forth, back and forth. You know, God, as a holy God, he is not a practical God. In fact, holiness always precedes pragmatism. Holiness, in fact, holiness and pragmatism are often at odds with one another. And when God comes upon his people, he tells them, be prepared. Take seriously my coming because he is holy. He is holy. And, you know, I, and I, this, is, you know this is a point that I really want to just have us take, drill in um, Yeah, because oftentimes, because we have free access, because we have Jesus, we often think, you know what, worship takes no preparation at all. Meeting God, we can just be flipping about it. That's not the case. If you look at the disciples who were closest to Jesus, who understood the gospel, they took worship more seriously than anyone because they understood the cost, what it took. So the coming of God is sacred. Second, the coming of God is majestic. On the morning of the third day, this is in verse 16, it says this, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. It tells us here that when God comes, the people are trembling. Not only are the people trembling, but it says later that even the mountain itself, this mountain is shaking because God has come. Friends, the coming of God is a fearful sight. It is a terrifying thing. You know, there's this uh, common misconception today that when we think about God and his angels, we think of them to be these friendly, pleasant, and clement beings but nothing could be further from the truth. You know, whenever God and his angels appear before people, they're not saying, oh, wow, angels. No, whenever God appears and angels appear, people are always trembling, and they're in a position of prostration. They are bowing down. And the first words that are usually uttered are this, do not be afraid. The first words that God and angels utter are, do not be afraid, because people are afraid. They are trembling before the presence of God. You know, so there is this misunderstanding that we have. We think that God is this pleasant nana who just gives us cookies and milk. He's nice and kind. And you can say the weirdest thing, and they'll just laugh and smile and say, that's great. No, God is, in fact, terrifying. However, what's also interesting is this. God's sternness, his holiness, God's terrifying nature, no matter how terrifying he is, it doesn't send people away from him. Whenever, God, whenever people come face to face with God and his angels, they don't run away. 
they bow. God's holiness, His terrifying nature, doesn't send people in way, but in fact, it has the opposite effect of drawing people towards Him. Think about here in Mount Sinai, right? God has descended in a fire. And because He's descended upon this hot fire, there's smoke everywhere, right? I know some of us enjoy the smokiness of campfires and barbecue, but this isn't an average barbecue that we have here on Mount Sinai. This is God coming in a fire, and there is smoke everywhere, thick smoke that makes it hard to see and hard to breathe. And there is the deathly sound of thunder and lightning and trumpets all around, and still the people don't run away. In fact, they want to get closer and closer. And even though Moses sets a perimeter around the mountain, he says, don't come near, don't don't pass this line or you're going to die. The people still want to draw near. Even that in verse uh, 21, God says to Moses, go, tell them, tell them, don't break in, don't break in to see me. You know, even though the people are terrified at God's coming, they are not only terrified, but they are also transfixed. They are trembling. They, want, they are trembling, but still they want to be near him, even though it means that if they take one step too close, they'll die. This is what I mean when I say that God is majestic. He is awesome. He is frightening, yet he is fascinating. You know, I have a friend um, who uh, grew up, who spent most of his time living in Africa, And um, in his uh, early 20s, he started working for a travel agency in Africa. And, uh, you know, I I believe the travel agency was owned by a a Korean owner. And so uh, whenever Koreans would come to visit uh, Africa, they would go through, uh, I believe it was in Kenya, uh, they would go through that travel agency and he would book tours and do all these things. Now, usually, you know, when, when Koreans come to visit Kenya, you know, they just want to go to the resorts or, um, you know, see uh, certain, you know, the safaris and things like that. But there was this one group of tourists who said, I want to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Now, Mount Kilimanjaro is the second highest mountain in the world, okay, next to Everest. And climbing a mountain like that, it's not your average weekend, you know, stroll in the park. Climbing a mountain of that sort requires preparation, training, and the right equipment, okay, upwards of $10,000. But these people didn't really know. They said, we want to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And this Korean owner thought, you know what? I don't have anyone who's trained to do this climbing thing. Let me just send this guy. So he sends my friend. My friend has no idea what he's doing. He has no equipment, he's not really prepared. He just has a North Face jacket and hiking boots, right? And he has a bag filled with these, you know, goodies, these, uh, you know, nutritional bars. And their thinking is, okay, these people, they'll probably do it maybe for a day, um, and then they'll get tired and we'll just go back down. Now, what happens is they start climbing. Now, climbing uh, Kilimanjaro takes about two weeks. Okay, it takes two weeks, and it's because um, you can't climb a mountain like that too, too fast. Because of the altitude, you'll get altitude sickness. So you have to climb, you have to rest, you have to sleep, you have to camp. And so there are camps set up all around. People can set up camps. And so my, my friend, he decides that, he says, you know what, I'll do it. You know, the guy just didn't, the owner didn't know any better. He's like, yeah, just take them. They'll, they'll, they'll be easy, right? So they, he takes them up, and they, they travel for a couple of days. Now, my friend, he wasn't trained, but somehow he was doing really, really well. And the tourists, they became tired, and so they said, you know what, we're going to go back down. 
But they told him, you should keep going. You should keep going because I think you can do this. And so he took their advice. The tourists, they went down after a couple of days, and he just kept going up and up and up by himself. He had, uh, he had a small tent, and he just kept going up, camping, uh, sleeping, going up, camping, sleeping. And uh, as he was going up, he told me that um, there were a number of uh, Europeans. Usually Europeans tend to do these things, but there were a number of Europeans who actually got sick, and he saw people carrying sick bodies down the mountain. People, in fact, die climbing mountains like this. But he said he couldn't stop, and he kept going up and up and up. And about two weeks or so, he finally got to the top. And when he got to the top of the mountain, he said he was filled with this emotion that he could not explain, this emotion of terror, this emotion of fear, this emotion of awe. When he saw the sight before him, and when he felt the wind, and he breathed in that air, he saw his entire life, and he said he literally just got down on his knees, and he wept because he didn't know what he was feeling. He said it was terrifying, yet it was so alluring that he could not stop, that he had to be up there and be near that grand sight. You know, I actually didn't believe him until he showed me photos. He said it was grand, it was terrifying, yet it was so alluring. I couldn't stop climbing that mountain. You know, this experience is not foreign to us. You know, we spent a lot of our resources visiting these grand wonders throughout the world, whether it's a canyon, canyon or a waterfall or a mountain or a volcano. And even though it's frightening, we want to get as close as possible to it. We want to stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon. We want to get as close as possible to the Niagara Falls, even though we know that one step too close, we will die instantly. We still want to draw near to it. Friends, that is who God is. His holiness causes us to tremble. Yet because of his great power and his holiness, we actually want to draw near to God. The coming of Jesus, if you remember it in Matthew 1 and 2 uh, and, and in Luke 2 and 3, the coming of Jesus you know, God, as he comes in the flesh, he comes as an infant. But Jesus, this infant, he strikes fear into the hearts of the kings of all the land. People were trembling because this king was born. Yet we find wise men, we find shepherds out in the field, coming, drawing near to Jesus, wanting to be near him. And so God is not... As we think about this, God is not some jolly old man like Santa. And he isn't some hard, horrid, and hideous being whom people flee from. No, God, he is fearsome, but he is someone that no one can turn away from. We want to draw near to him. There's that well-known line in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis's novel, where there's this girl, Susan, she finds out about this lion, Aslan, who's supposed to represent God, and she said, oh, Aslan, he's a lion, the great lion? And she asks, is he safe? Is this lion safe? And the words of the famed Mr. Beaver, who says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's not safe, but he is good. 
Francis Thomas in his poem says this, near his presence we are lashed with terror, but we are leashed with longing. The last and final point that uh, we see here in today's passage, the coming of God is transformative. The coming of God is transformative. You know, when God comes to meet his people, when he descends to meet his people, God, he doesn't come just to put on a show, just for all these fireworks so that he can just leave. No, God, you know, he's not like your, you know, your rock band that comes into town and puts on this amazing, amazing show and just leaves. No, he's not like thing one and two in Dr. Seuss's The Cat in the Hat. You know, they come, create this huge mess, and they just leave. No, when God comes, he comes with the intent of showing his power, his might, but also transforming those whom he meets. He comes in his holiness and his majesty, ultimately with the goal to transform his people so that they can be like himself. This is what Exodus 19, 5 and 6 says. He says this, to Israel, to former slaves, to a nobody, he says, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests, a holy nation. In other words, when God comes, he doesn't come just to flex. He comes to share, to share in his being, in his goodness and his holiness. Friends, God has come in the person of his son, Jesus. He has come in his majesty and his holiness, but he has come in the paradox of weakness and death on a cross. And God came in his son not just to show forth his power, but to transform all those who encounter him. God's goal of coming is so that in this encounter, he will change you and I to be like him. Let me just end with this in 1 Peter 2. This is Peter, a fisherman, once fisherman, once a man who denied Jesus three times, he's talking. And he's not just pulling this out of thin air. He has read the Old Testament. He has understood God's promise and his coming. He says this, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Doesn't it remind you of Exodus? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter has Exodus 19 in mind as he instructs Christians how we are to understand God's first coming and how we are to look forward to his second coming. Friends, God has come in his Son to make us more like him, to take away our sins and our guilt so that we have full access to God. Friends, let us continue to offer up worship with reverence and awe. Amen. Let's pray.